I'm Christopher Clark, and this is a Vespucci story. They came under cover of darkness. In the bitter cold, hundreds of men and women quietly spread out across the hillside in the jagged shadow of the Hottentots Holland Mountains. Some lugged bags of tools and basic building materials. Others carried heavy suitcases and mattresses on their heads. They set to work quickly, clearing brush with machetes and hammering together around 40 makeshift corrugated metal shacks in a few short hours. Wearing a thick coat and one of his signature baseball caps, the squat, lively figure of Midas Wanana urged them on, issuing instructions in short staccato bursts. He knew they didn't have long. Dawn would break soon. The real fight was just about to begin. As always, Wanana was ready to face it head on. Like the rest of the group, Wanana lived in the nearby township of Kayamandi a sprawling, impoverished settlement previously designated a blacks-only area during South Africa's long apartheid years. Kayamandi means nice home in Isiklosa, the township's principal language, but it was far from it. Wedged between the expansive wine farms on the edge of the picturesque colonial town of Stellenbosch, it was chronically underserved and impossibly overcrowded. For Wanana, a hard-working minibus taxi driver, who'd been living there with his family for almost two decades, it served as a stark reminder of how little things had changed for black South Africans since Nelson Mandela was elected some 20-odd years ago in 1994. Wanana was a devoted member of Mandela's party, the African National Congress, or ANC for short. He was also a tireless community leader. He had organized countless protests over the years against the lack of basic services in Kayamandi and, more recently, a spiraling housing shortage. But for the most part, they had seemed to fall on deaf ears. He'd often lamented this sorry state of affairs with his wife Nontutuzelo or over beers with his friend and fellow activist Zoland Lassi. Lassi was three years Wanana senior, but he'd always seen Wanana as a mentor. The two men would sometimes walk to the periphery of Kaimandi and look out over the vast tracts of white-owned farmland that adjoined it. Like so much of South Africa, the land had been stripped away from their ancestors, while the descendants were still forced to live on top of each other like sardines. They'd eventually decided it was time to resort to more drastic measures. If no one was going to give them more land, they would have to take it. We are owning the land. The land is belong to us. The land was stolen by the white. We took the land by us. Stefan Smith woke early the next morning, as he usually did. He sat down in his office to read the financial news when a call came through from his farm foreman. The occupiers were back. Anxious and angry, Smith heaved his considerable bulk into his white pickup truck and sped across his large wine estate, passing between hundreds of acres of neatly trained grapevines. Farming was in Smith's blood. This land had been in his family 
since it was bought by his great-grandfather at the turn of the 20th century. The history of the farm itself stretched all the way back to 1701, just a few decades after white settlers first began to annex the area, claiming great swaths of fertile land that were then toiled by slaves, fueling the burgeoning economy of the Dutch Cape Colony. The land had previously been used for farming cattle and wheat, but Smitter charted a different course and it was now known for bold, fruit-forward red wines and a traditional Cape Tawny port made from old, low-yielding vines. As Smith reached the highest point of his farm, he peered down at the settlement that now spread across an unused corner of the property. Amid the newly erected tracks below, Wanana and Nlasi noticed his car arrive on the hill. After a moment's silent standoff, the farmer turned around and disappeared from sight in a cloud of dust. The occupiers continued building their new homes. This game of cat and mouse had been going on for months. Smith had had the occupiers forcibly evicted on several previous occasions. As the ringleaders, Wanana and Ndlasi, had both been arrested by police more than once. But they kept coming back, bringing ever greater numbers with them. With no more room to grow, Kayamandi had finally burst at the seams. This time, when the police showed up, they sprayed tear gas and pepper spray, but they were met with a fierce resistance. The occupiers would not be moved. Smith found himself in a tight spot. He was wary of the possible repercussions of further heavy-handed eviction attempts as the occupation grew and gained publicity. He'd begun to receive anonymous death threats over the phone and was afraid to meet with the occupiers in person. He felt trapped, suffocated. As he weighed his options, more desperate people streamed onto his land. Within a few weeks, there were as many as a thousand shacks dotted across the verdant hillside in tight rows. The occupiers named the new settlement Azania, a pre-colonial name for South Africa. Azania would soon find itself at the heart of the country's incendiary land debate, and it would not only be territory at stake, but lives. As Smith and the Azania occupiers battled it out in the Winelands, South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, was about to bring the issue of land restitution to the forefront of the country's political discourse. In a late-night announcement, at the end of a two-day ANC meeting, he proposed a constitutional amendment that would allow the government to seize unused private land without compensation and redistribute it to disadvantaged black farmers. 25 years after apartheid, the vast majority of South Africa's land remained in the hands of whites, who accounted for less than 10% of the population. Much of that land had been attained through various kinds of forced and often violent dispossession. In December 2018, South Africa's parliament voted with more than 75% support to draft the amendment. It would specify the terms under which private land could be taken. As the votes were counted, black MPs rose from their seats and began to sing an old liberation song about the pain of black landlessness. The melancholic harmony, built from a low murmur, 
to a resounding cry throughout the chamber. Back in the winelands, white farmers were unnerved by what was unfolding. Many feared a repeat of the violent state-sanctioned land grabs that had left neighboring Zimbabwe's economy in ruins in the early 2000s. Some also felt there was a correlation between the political rhetoric and the perceived spike in farm murders. A number went so far as to suggest that such murders were racially motivated or even part of a coordinated white genocide. As the land debate gained traction, Enazania, Wanana and Nlasi stuck to their guns as a sea of journalists and international news crews descended onto the settlement. This was their land, they said. It had been stolen from blacks. They were simply trying to return it to its rightful owners. But while Wanana frequently reiterated that their fight was with the municipality, not the farmer Smirt, Ndlasi was sometimes prone to fanning the flames. If a person must die, then so be it, he told a local news channel about four months after the occupation began. His words would soon come to seem suspiciously prophetic. Meanwhile, Smirt was growing more embittered by the day. South Africa was going to the dogs, he would tell friends around the barbecue on weekends. Smirt believed that the ANC was secretly busing poor blacks into Stellenbosch from other parts of the country to create voting blocks in traditionally white strongholds before the elections. The Azania occupiers were effectively fodder, pawns, in a political game that he'd also reluctantly become enmeshed in. He was worried about his business too. His family-run cellar was increasingly dwarfed by competitors backed by foreign investment. The region had also been hit hard by a prolonged drought. Smith started to drink more heavily. His weight ballooned. He would sit on his stoop nursing a glass of his farm's best red blend, surveying the land that had been in his family for four generations and muse about leaving. Maybe moving to Uruguay, Iceland, New Zealand, somewhere, anywhere, where farming was still profitable and less hostile. But unless he could sell his farm, he was stuck. And who in their right mind would buy it now? the death threats started to become more frequent. One text message told Smith that he would be burnt alive in his own home. He was sure that these messages were being sent by occupiers who still had a pending eviction order looming over them. He had heard what Ndlasi had had to say on the news. Increasingly paranoid, Smith beefed up security. In addition to an existing electric perimeter fence, he installed CCTV cameras and hired three armed security guards, two of them ex-cops, to be on site 
it wasn't enough. One night, in late 2018, Smith and his wife, Zarina, awoke to find that a series of fires had been lit on the property. As Smith looked out of the window at the flames punctuating the darkness, a quick volley of gunshots was fired somewhere near the house. The message he felt was loud and clear. He was a marked man. There was little warning when they finally came for him. As dusk fell quickly on another cold winter evening, four masked men slipped through an open side door of the house and stepped directly into Smith's kitchen. Smith was entertaining an old friend who was visiting from Switzerland. Zarina was making tea while her husband and his guest sat at the dining room table after dinner. Zarina screamed so loud at the sudden intrusion that she didn't hear the first shot. Smith hadn't even had time to get up from his chair as the round hit him in the middle of his chest. One of the intruders took a few steps closer to the wounded man and shot him again in the head at point-blank range. Smith slumped onto the floor. The intruders moved quickly. They tied up Zarina and the guest, grabbed a handbag, a couple of cell phones and some jewelry, then slunk out into the enveloping night through the same door they used to enter only moments before. One of Smith's security guards, eventually alerted by Zarina's cries for help, belatedly came into the kitchen and untied the two shaken women, then called the police. When they arrived at the house, Smith was pronounced dead at the scene. Zarena told detectives that the intruders were black and had been speaking to each other in Isiklasa. Word of the attack quickly circulated on the local farming and neighborhood watch WhatsApp groups. Within a few hours, one local media outlet after another began to feverishly break the news. 62-year-old Stefan Smith is the second farmer to be killed within less than a month in the province. Most of them implied that there was a link between the ongoing occupation and the murder. The Louisenhof wine estate owner had been battling land grabs on his farms and had turned to the courts to have the illegal occupants from the neighbouring informal settlement removed. At an urgent press briefing in Stellenbosch the day after the killing, the provincial minister of agriculture called for a ramping up of rural security. It was less than a month since another wine farmer had been killed in the nearby town of Bonnyvale. The minister also suggested to reporters that there was a tie between these attacks and the growing political debate over land reform. In Kayamandi, Wanana was shocked to hear of Smith's death. As the public face of the occupation, he knew suspicion would immediately fall on him and Ndlasi. A white man was dead. Whatever this meant for their cause, it couldn't be good. But Wanana also knew that there were dangerous forces at play that he could not control. It wasn't long before reporters returned to his door to ask for his comment on the killing. He expressed his sadness for Smith's family and reiterated that the occupiers were not responsible. He knew that many would not believe him. Almost two weeks after the murder, a memorial for Smith was held in the centre of Stellenbosch at the imposing monolith of Mudurkerk, South Africa's second oldest church. Hundreds of Smith's family and friends poured into the capacious interior, paying their respects to Zorena as they passed her at the entrance. 
A gaggle of local reporters mulled around shiftily outside. The eulogy was given by a close friend of Smith's. While fighting back tears, he remembered the farmer as a good and kind man. He added that Smith was now the seventh friend he had lost to murder in this violent country. After lambasting the government for putting private landowners in the crosshairs, he ended his eulogy with a warning. Be wary of the evil in your community. His words hung heavy in the air as he walked back to his seat. The presence of Zarena's four bodyguards did little to alleviate the sense of underlying tension that now gripped the churchgoers. Throughout the service, they'd been positioned strategically around the church's periphery, eyeing the mourners coldly. Although the church was near capacity, a section on the right flank had been kept empty for Zarena and one of the bodyguards. Even without all of this, as a Muslim and the daughter of a working-class Cape Malay family, Zarena already stood out. She was also the only woman of color in the entire place, aside from a couple of the reporters. Mourners tried to forget about the stern security detail as they shuffled silently out of the church into the crisp winter air. In the weeks after the memorial, Zarena gradually moved out of the house she and Smith had shared. The staff stopped coming to work. Only Smith's personal bodyguard remained on site. The grounds soon began to look neglected and overgrown. And the constant crackle of the electric perimeter fence was often the only disturbance to the eerie stillness that had descended on the dead farmer's property. Divisions were beginning to emerge among different factions vying for control of Azania. Wanana publicly blamed a notorious former deputy mayor and local tavern owner called Cameron Mgago for sowing the seeds of such division. Mgago, who had been dismissed from his government post over fraud and corruption charges, was now widely said to sit at the top of an extortion syndicate that also included crooked cops. Azania provided potentially lucrative new ground for such rackets. Like Smith, Wanana started receiving threatening messages. He also suspected he was being followed. He knew that in this place of scant opportunity and everyday criminality, some people would be willing to kill to ensure their share of any potential new spoils. He stopped leaving his home whenever possible, and he told his wife Nontutuzelo to always be back before dark. For the first time, he confessed to her that he was afraid. A little over two months after Smith's murder, Nontutuzelo received a call just before dawn one morning. A neighbor asked her to tell her husband to move his minibus taxi, which was parked just down the road, saying it was blocking their driveway. Wanana walked out of their modest home, and on approaching the vehicle, he noticed that two of his tires had been slashed. As he bent down to inspect the damage, three armed men jumped out of a parked white car and opened fire. Bullets ripped through Wanana's body as he turned and tried to make a run for the house. He collapsed, face down, on the street. His 13-year-old son, Mulisi, had seen everything unfold through the living room window. He ran outside and tried to help his father up, but he wasn't strong enough. Mjolisi looked on helplessly as the gunman jumped back into the car and sped away from the scene. 
Wanana's family rushed him to the hospital in town, but he was already dead by the time they got there. Later that same morning, Wanana had been due to lead a march to protest Cameron Mgago's alleged interference in the provision of local services like water and electricity. Undeterred by the shooting, a few hours later, about 100 Kayamnandi residents, including Wanana's old friend Ndlasi, marched to the town hall anyway. It was what Wanana, ever the fighter, would have wanted. To Wanana's wife, Nontutuzelo, it was clear that his death had been a targeted hit. She was sure it led back to Cameron Mkako and ultimately to the control of Azania. She waited for police to come and take a statement, but they never showed. She would occasionally go to the police station to ask for updates on the case, but the detectives never seemed to be around. The investigation soon petered out without any arrests being made. Wanana's death also failed to draw the media frenzy that had surrounded the Smith killing. He became just another poor black victim in an area where murder had become commonplace. The bloodletting wouldn't stop there. Less than two months after Wanana's death, a man walked into Mkago's tavern one Friday night and shot him dead in front of his customers. Again, no arrests were made. Two weeks later, another gunman shot and wounded one another's brother-in-law in front of his house in broad daylight, just a few streets from where Wanana had been gunned down. Nontutuzelo feared she would be next. After hearing rumours that her name was on a hit list, she decided she could no longer stay in the home she and her husband had shared for nearly 20 years, where she now felt alone and exposed. She packed a few essential belongings and moved with two of her three sons to an overcrowded and sand-swept settlement on the edge of a seaside town about 15 miles away. Only her oldest son, Sianda, remained in Kayamnandi. He lived alone in a one-room shack that his father had built for him on the hillside in Azania, on land that had ultimately cost him his life. As a pervasive climate of fear continued to grip Kayamandi, detectives working on the Smith case found that there had been no sign of forced entry anywhere on the farmer's property. CCTV footage did not show any intruders entering or leaving. The open side door also didn't seem to make sense, given Smith's hypersecurity consciousness. Some of his employees swore that he would never have made such an oversight. It also emerged that Smith had made an agreement with the municipality just two weeks before his death to sell the portion of land that comprised the Zanyam so it could be developed for housing. The news of the sale had quickly reached Wanana and the occupiers. It marked a significant victory. The threat of further eviction attempts by the farmer no longer hung over them, and they hoped the sale meant they would soon have proper homes and services in Azania. So what did they stand to gain from killing Smith? As the detectives continued their investigations, they discovered that two guns and around 20,000 US dollars in cash had gone missing from a safe in Smith's office about six months before he was killed. A new theory began to take hold. Maybe the whole thing had been an inside job. Almost a year and a half after the murder, the police finally made their move. In the early hours of a warm summer morning, 
they simultaneously descended on three different houses in three working-class Cape Town suburbs. At the first of the three homes, they hit the jackpot. Searching the property, they found a safe that contained Smith's missing firearms along with rounds of ammunition. The caliber of the weapons matched those that had been used to kill the farmer. Police dragged a male suspect outside in handcuffs, where a small crowd had formed. The man was Derek Sait, one of the two ex-cops in Smith's on-site security detail. Across town, a second male suspect called Stephen Damon was also arrested. It quickly emerged that Damon was Derek Sait's brother-in-law and had also been part of Smith's security team. Damon promptly confessed to his involvement in the crime and pointed to a third suspect as the architect. But as the police swooped in on the third house, the alleged mastermind evaded them, slipping out of a back door. Later that same day, a police spokesman released a public statement with a vague but telling description of the escaped suspect, a woman in her mid-50s who had been close to the deceased. The fugitive remained on the run for four days. Then finally, the game was up. She knew that the police description would point directly at her, and she eventually accepted that it was only a matter of time before she was caught. The woman turned herself in at Stellenbosch police station on a Monday morning dressed all in black as if in mourning. It was Zorena. The media immediately jumped all over the story, with a local tabloid promptly dubbing her the Black Widow. Shocked, some of Smith's friends initially refused to believe Zorena could have been behind his death. Despite her absences in more recent times, she'd been such a devoted wife for so many years. She'd run his baths, massaged his feet at the end of a long day, waited on him hand and foot. Many white farmers, meanwhile, were reluctant to accept that the usual narrative of a political and racially motivated farm attack had seemingly been so emphatically upended. Others in the Stellenbosch rumor mill were quick to reveal their prejudices. A woman of color marrying a wealthy white man almost a decade her senior, they thought, obviously had nefarious ulterior motives from the start. Ultimately, the truth would prove to be both more complex and more chilling than most could have predicted. Zorena and Smith had first met in 2003 when he hired her to be his in-house cook. Friends soon noticed the growing affection between Zorena and Smith. She doted on him endlessly. Smith ultimately paid for Zorena's divorce and the pair married in October 2005. In an area still starkly divided along both color and cultural lines, Zorena's race and religious background were rumored to have been a source of tension between Smith and some members of his clan. His relationship with his father, a stern and controlling patriarch, had already been deteriorating ever since Smith divorced from his first wife, Esme, with whom he'd had two children. His marriage to Zorena soon afterwards had only made matters worse. Despite this, the couple appeared to be happy for a time. But more recently, all had not been well. Zorena was never around anymore when friends came to visit. Smith had begun to ponder openly whether it wouldn't be better for the two of them to sleep in separate wings of the house and only meet for meals. In such a conservative environment, these kind of comments were not taken lightly. 
In the weeks after Zarena's arrest, as she and her co-accused made a number of brief court appearances, a clearer picture of her alleged motives began to emerge. About six months before Smith's murder, and just a couple of weeks after the cash and guns had gone missing from his safe, he had written a will that largely excluded Zarena from his substantial estate. He'd also tried to remove her from his life insurance policy. After more than 13 years of marriage, this would have effectively left her with next to nothing. But after Smith's death, Zarena had claimed to have found a more recent will folded in a Bible in their bedroom, naming her as the primary executor of his estate. A forensic analysis of the more recent will concluded that Smith's signature had been forged. Damningly, Various affidavits also strongly suggested that Zarena had tried to forge Smith's mother's will just before her death about four years earlier. In the old woman's final months, Zarena had been a near-constant presence at her bedside. Other affidavits said that Smith had grown weary of having conversations about financial matters, afraid of who might be listening in. The state alleged that Zarena had ultimately agreed to pay Sate and Damon about 150,000 US dollars each from Smith's assets to kill her husband. Sate also stood to inherit a portion of Smith's land. The state claimed that Zarena and her co-accused had intentionally used Azania as a red herring to cover their tracks. Satellite pings appeared to show that at least some of the threatening messages Smith had received had come from within his own property. The state also claimed to have evidence that the incident in which shots were fired outside Smith's home had been staged by Sate and Damon to ensure that their security contract would be renewed. But just a couple of weeks before his death, Smith had talked to a friend about revoking their services. In doing so, he perhaps expedited his own death warrant. What had pushed Zarena to this point? For the most part, as she was marched between the courtroom and a small cell in South Africa's most notorious high-security prison, her face remained impassive. Meanwhile, she complained to the magistrate of suffering from a number of illnesses that were being exacerbated by poor prison conditions and a lack of requisite medication. In the past, many of these same ailments had been Zarena's excuse for her frequent absences from the Smith home. But a doctor close to the family believed that Zarena suffered from Munchausen syndrome, a mental disorder often caused by parental neglect or childhood trauma wherein patients fake illness in order to gain attention or sympathy. As the rumours continued to swirl around her, Zarena appeared to seek solace in a Muslim faith. During her marriage to Smith, she had drunk alcohol and kept her head uncovered. Now... She appeared in court for the series of hearings in a black hijab. She read Quranic texts during intervals, ignoring the incessant flashes from the scores of cameras trained on her as she quietly recited the words to herself under her breath. While some onlookers surmised that Zarena was playing to the gallery, residents from the area where she'd been staying with her family before her arrest said she had taken to wearing the hijab some months previously. After almost two months in prison, Zarena was eventually granted bail on health grounds until a court date was set for the murder trial. She returned to her family home 
where she was to remain under 24-hour house arrest as she awaited her fate. Back in Azania, Ndlazi was busy planning more protests. Almost three years after the occupation began, and more than 18 months since the municipality agreed to purchase the land, they had still failed to provide any basic services, even as the number of shacks scattered across the hillside continued to grow. Ndlasi had begun to eye another piece of Smith's land for a new occupation, and he and a few of his comrades were already clearing a few hectares of old grapevines in preparation. As far as Ndlasi was concerned, the fight for land was far from over. Meanwhile, long unemployed and without the financial support of her husband, Nontutuzelo was struggling to make ends meet. Most weekends, she would take a minibus taxi back through the labyrinthine streets of Kayamandi to Azania to see her eldest son, Sianda. But she was still afraid to stay in the area for more than a few hours and would always depart again before dark. Sometimes, just before she left, Nontutuzelo would look out of the small window of the shack at the rolling hills of Smith's vast estate bathing in the soft afternoon light. It was a beautiful view. 